because Brexit means Brexit. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. We're in a time of trade wars, of Brexit, and people notice an increasing theme of isolationism. Here's John Ahern, Global Head of Trade Finance and the Treasury and Trade Solutions Team at Citi. The only reference point you can probably go back to is the 1930s, right? There was a lot of protectionism. You saw the issues in Germany, etc. But I believe those economies are significantly different than the economies we have today. While Europe was just getting back on its feet after the First World War, corporate treasury had just started to trade and send money back and forth across international borders. And one company that grew during this time was the German company, Beiersdorf. In the 1930s, Beiersdorf hit turbulence. This is the story about the past, how corporate treasury innovated amidst the most extreme uncertainty there is, life and death. Welcome to the Euromoney podcast, Treasury and Turbulence, Episode 2, Beiersdorf. This podcast is supported by City Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 98 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change. The German pharmaceutical company behind Nivea Cream is 136 years old. But back in 1933, when Hitler rose to power, the firm came under intense pressure. It had to use its network of international holding companies not only to keep its business, but to save the lives of its Jewish CEO and staff. This was possible because, financially, on paper, this German company looked like it was Dutch. To examine this extreme version of risk management, we're going to take a look at how corporate treasury and the holding company began, and how these developments in business history helped the Beiersdorf CEO, Willy Jacobson, and his staff flee Nazi Germany. The function of a corporate treasury has been around for a long time, but it was not always called corporate treasury. My name's Mark Billings. I'm a lecturer at uh, the University of Exeter Business School. Mark's focus is rare for a historian. He is an expert on the history of corporate treasury. The birth of corporate treasury comes from the biggest businesses in the U.S., the railroads, because, you know, these are complex businesses, huge amounts of capital invested in them. And to actually finance those businesses, that was very challenging, I think. So that management practices grew up. And corporate treasury, I would say, is one of those areas. Why was Europe behind? Because politically, Europe is more fragmented. It's easier to sustain local markets in Europe. Distance is not so much of an issue. Transport costs are not an issue. You know, the physical movement of goods and people is, is easier within Europe. But everything changed for Europe when World War I began. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride World War I changes a lot. The role of the state becomes more important. Taxation, individuals and businesses, increases. In order to meet the needs of war, then you see certain types of business growing greatly. You start to see 
a greater professionalization of management in the interwar period in particular. People who specialize in finance, a lot of the, the leading people in the accounting profession were involved in government during World War One. The government was very small in the UK, was tiny before World War One, And they have to bring in the private sector, the business sector in order to run the war economy. And those people acquire a lot of expertise and then they use that, they apply that expertise in the uh, professionalization of business in the interwar period. The official end of the First World War. At Versailles, the fountains played as they did once for the Sun King. For there, the victors and the vanquished were to put their signatures to what was called the Treaty of Versailles. And so they signed, for this was it, they said. This was peace, real peace, once and for all. Many of the assets of the Hamburg-based Beiersdorf were repatriated, and it looked like the company might fold. However, its two German founders died suddenly in 1918, leaving the company to a Polish heir, and Poland was not considered an enemy of the Allies. Jeff? Hey there. Ah, hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Jeffrey Jones is a professor at the Harvard Business School, and he's spent years looking at political risk in business history. He says he finds Beiersdorf CEO Willie Jacobson to be one of the most interesting innovators of the business world. He's a marketing genius, and he's a business genius. One of these people who is not going to let an unfortunate incident stop him with the business. And, you know, that guy takes over Beiersdorf in the early 20s. And he's in a country which is falling apart with hyperinflation. This is a manager who understands how to manage in turbulent and difficult conditions and just doesn't give up. Willie Jacobson, with not much more than the shell of a company, starts again. He starts building up an organizational structure where a lot of the ownership of the IP of Beiersdorf is not held in Germany into legally owned by Dutch and Swiss interests in the hope that if there's another war ever, they'll hold on to their assets this time. Other companies looking for better ways to raise capital and better ways to protect their assets established the same kind of company structure in the interwar period. The Italian tire company Pirelli moves its holding company into Belgium in 1920, which was a better place to raise capital than Italy. Le forze navali... A lot of people are playing what you can almost call arbitrage of their nationality. In a world which is beginning to fall apart, highly fragmented, a lot of regulations, which like sounds like familiar in 2018. But in a world that's falling apart, people are seeking easier places to do business and safer places to do business. But was the holding company a new idea? Here's James Hollis. He's a PhD candidate at Oxford, specializing in the history of offshore finance and tax havens. Holding companies as an institution first came into existence in the late 19th century. Regulatory arbitrage was not the only reason a firm like Beiersdorf might establish a foreign holding company. Switzerland was beginning to be used as a jurisdiction by European firms which wanted to establish holding companies. And there were also regulatory considerations there because even in that period, Switzerland had 
a comparatively light touch regulatory regime. So, for example, it allowed you to raise an almost unlimited level of debt off a comparatively slim base of equity. That intermediate holding company would not pay any tax in the jurisdiction it was in, and companies learned how to move money in time to report profits in countries where they didn't pay taxes. The next phase of sophistication was then to start establishing a group treasury company in a low-tax jurisdiction, which would either own the shares in these operating companies in other places, or would act as their banker, essentially borrowing money from them and lending it to other companies. There was at the time an international effort to rein in this burgeoning regulatory arbitrage that still exists today. In 1922, the League of Nations started to investigate this question and to try and come up with a multilateral solution, which essentially would have involved all the individual members of the League of Nations gauging in automatic exchange of information about money held in their territory on behalf of foreign nationals. Although those negotiations rumbled on for most of the 1920s, it was impossible to reach agreement at an international level, not least because Switzerland and the UK, which were the main places where this money from continental Europe was stashed, were extremely reluctant to cooperate because they thought that that would damage their competitive advantage in financial services. Not a dissimilar situation from the one that we still have today. But the pressure that drove Willie Jacobson to move the executive team and core business out of Germany and into Holland in 1933 was a different animal altogether. Here's Jeff Jones again. Their opponents are extremely quick to start running campaigns that the company is Jewish. Um, and what they do is remove all the Jews from the management who they reallocate to the Netherlands. Beiersdorf was split in two halves, with business in Holland and the marketing arm in Germany. They put non-Jewish people who are friendly to the management in place, and then they pursue this strategy, really, of attempting to align themselves with the new ideals propagated by elements of the Nazi government. I mean, healthy, blonde, sportive, blue-eyed sort of people. And their advertisements take on a, a distinctly um, special type of characteristic in some ways. Natürlich Nivea! Natürlich Nivea! Natürlich Nivea! Natürlich Nivea! Amid this disruption and immense uncertainty, Beiersdorf creates an innovative corporate treasury strategy. They formalize the ring structure, and initially it's run out of Amsterdam, and Willie Jacobson, who's Jewish, moves actually to Amsterdam to run all these affiliate companies. The Germans increase the amount of capital controls. It's very hard to move money out of the country. And so really, it's now very important that these affiliates operate not having anything to do with Germany. And they start lending money to each other. So the ring affiliates start lending whatever Danish company lends to the French company, etc., etc., etc. And it's all headquartered out of like um, the Netherlands, Amsterdam. Jacobson and his core Holland staff serve as the corporate treasury, much like a multinational today. It managed the cash flows, bought the raw materials for Nivea, oversaw quality control, and carried out the research and development. But the actual selling of Nivea lotion was done by the subsidiaries. But by 1936, the political pressure on German companies with foreign holdings increased dramatically. 
Here's James Hollis. In 1936, certain exchange control violations attracted the death penalty. Meaning, wait, let's just bring that home. So what would be an example of an exchange control violation? Right. So let's say you're a German company. You're doing business in a foreign jurisdiction and making profits there in a foreign currency. Now, by 1936, what the German law in effect said was all of that foreign currency which you earn must be surrendered up to the Reichsbank in exchange for marks. People were executed for exchange control violations. Yeah, well, what were referred to as economic crimes. In 1937, Jacobson fled to America and retired early. He lived in Culver City until his death. Jeff Jones again. And the guy right moves to LA and the ring firms all pay his, like, his pension until he dies in 1963. That's right. And as he chased after the brand, they were all writing letters back to him. When World War II began, the company made agreements to hand over business dealings to several of its affiliates. But after the war, it proved very difficult to get Nivea back to Beiersdorf. The guy in Switzerland, Richard Deutsch, swore on like his mother's grave to the Swiss authorities that he owned the whole business. He wasn't really in a great position to give it back. You know, he eventually makes an agreement, I think, in the in the 50s. And by 1958, he, he sells it back to the company, but he makes a huge profit out of it, which is sad. The even sadder case is the American case where the, their former partner, Carl Herzog, really behaves badly. He buys all of their expropriated assets using the money he actually owed Beiersdorf from license fees, and then he hangs on to it until the 1970s. So the situation takes like three three decades for Beiersdorf to recover its IP. And it's very expensive. And they are just an example of patient capital. Because with all of these aberrant persons who kind of betrayed their trust, they don't act aggressively towards them, they keep visiting them, they try to encourage them. They're just very, very, very patient and long term to recover their assets, which they do miraculously. Beiersdorf was enabled to join in the recording of this podcast. But they did answer our questions via email. Here's what they said. In the last 130 years, Beiersdorf had to cope with a lot of different, very difficult situations, like the sudden death of the co-founder, two world wars, global recession in the 1920s and 30s, the Nazi regime, and the loss of the global Nivea trademarks after World War II. But Beiersdorf always found a way to cope with and survive these severe crises. The knowledge of the past and the development of the company is key to understanding today's business. I told Jeff Jones that we might speak to them. I mean, I might ask them if they know this history. They do, as it turns out. The company has published an online and print series about its history, which is used to introduce new employees to the company. The email also says this. The brand history and the company's history is still very important today. It shows us the keys to today's success. It is vital that our colleagues know the company's history, and the history and development of our brands. The Beiersdorf case, or Willie Jacobson case, is in some ways is, you know, a, an unusually successful story. It was a closely knit company, uh, close family links, close Jewish links, a heavy reliance on trust. Um, and that sees them through a world where the rule of law is basically breaking down. And that, I mean, that's the story of the 1930s. Laws, norms break down in a catastrophic fashion. Here's Mark Billings again. Was at that time Willie Jacobson taking a corporate treasurer role as well? Yeah, absolutely, because once you change the strategy, once you change the business model, then that impacts on the role of the corporate treasurer. So the the business is, is making those kinds of decisions, and that 
then has implications for the way in which the treasurer, however defined or whatever he's called, um, how that person operates. What do you think about the history of corporate treasury is integral? If you can't manage cash and you can't manage financial risk, you are not going to have a business. The particular challenges that treasury in any given business faces obviously depend upon business model, strategy, external factors. And uh, the external factors, of course, you probably have very little control over. But you've still got to manage it. So I think in treasury management, risk management, it's not necessarily what is the right answer. It's having an answer, having an answer that works. And now, in light of the past, we'll turn over to the present. We'll hand over to Charlie Corbett, Your Money Specialist Content Editor, who is joined by John Ahern, Global Head of Trade Finance in the Treasury and Trade Solutions team at Citi. We're going to be talking about the kinds of strategies treasurers can put in place to reduce risk in their supply chains and maximize liquidity at this time of profound geopolitical and economic uncertainty. Do we live in unprecedented times? Well, I think we're really living in very volatile times. You're waking up every morning, there's sanctions, there's more news about tariffs being levied on this particular product, that particular product, etc. I think one very good example is Turkey. Their currency has been devalued quite significantly. There's been sanctions put on them. It's just pretty amazing how you can go to bed one night feeling relatively secure and wake up the next morning to a whole brand new world of risks that you never anticipated. So I do think it is unprecedented time. The only reference point you can probably go back to is the 1930s, right? There was a lot of protectionism. You saw the issues in Germany, etc., But I believe those economies are significantly different than the economies we have today. Are there any opportunities that this throws up? There's always opportunities, right? If you go back to the last time tariffs were used during the Bush administration, there was quite an impact on the U.S. farmers, for example. However, it was quite beneficial for Brazil and Venezuela at the time and Argentina. So there are opportunities. The question is knowing where the opportunities are, being prepared for them. If we could refer now to to companies themselves, treasurers themselves, um, you know how these forces are affecting, um, well, firstly, international trade and financial flows, but also what corporate treasurers need to do to mitigate the risks that we've been talking about. We're coming out of a really unique period in our time, right? The EU is ending quantitative easing. The U.S. Treasury has been very active in issuing new debt. And what we're seeing is, you know, a world where liquidity was just all over the place. And now that liquidity is starting to uh, subside, you're also seeing banks now competing for deposits. Many of the corporate treasurers will be aware that many banks said, look, I don't really want your deposit. Can you put it someplace else? Now what you're seeing is banks are saying, oh, yeah, I really want that deposit. Let me pay you for it. You're really starting to see, you know, sort of a split world. The West is finally coming out of the recession. But then if you go to various parts of the emerging market, that recovery isn't as strong. Where you're seeing interest rates in the West going up, you're seeing interest rates in the East going down. For a a corporate treasurer, that's got huge ramifications, right? Because it's no longer a homogenous world. It's a world where there's all kinds of different events going on in all kinds of different countries. And staying abreast of all those issues is quite difficult today. 
how has the actual business of Treasury changed in your time, I suppose, in terms of where the Treasurer sits in the corporate hierarchy, um, the day-to-day job? I think the business has changed quite dramatically. We've seen in many places the Treasury function actually shrink. We're seeing many, many of our clients deploying shared service centers. So instead of having just individual countries now, historically what we saw was the payments were first, where they would consolidate the payments into a shared service center. Now what we're seeing is on the receivable side, they're doing the same thing, building shared service centers. Liquidity is the lifeblood of companies. So I actually think the treasurer's position in the company has actually been escalated quite a bit. There's all kinds of different structures. So I think really for a treasurer today, it's not the size of the organization, it's the impact of the organization. And I think that they're actually much more important today than they probably were five to ten years ago. Finally, John, if you had to give the corporate treasurers listening to this podcast one piece of advice, what would that be? Look, I think it's all about knowledge. Go out and get as much knowledge as you possibly can. Understand the changes. Understand, you know, the world that's going on around you. The speed of change has never been at the level that it is today. And, you know, the ivory tower approach that I'll build an operation and just let it run isn't going to work anymore. It's going to have to be a constancy of change. You need to be of that mindset that the way I do business today it may be significantly different than how I'm going to do business in a year from now or two years from now. So it's uh, being able to adopt in a rapidly changing world. This podcast was produced, presented, and edited by me, Nell McKenzie, with help and leadership from our head of digital, Chris Hunt, our deputy head of digital, Angelique Bevan. Camille Calvert was our project manager and supervised our marketing rollout. The City House View was reported by Euromoney Specialist Content Editor, Charlie Corbett, and thanks to support from City. For all the latest coverage on transaction services, please visit euromoney.com forward slash transaction services. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you want to get involved in some of our future podcasts, please email podcasts at euromoney.com. If you're feeling really generous, you can leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast channel. And also, don't hesitate to recommend this podcast to any friends and colleagues you know who have a passion for corporate treasury.